what I want to do tonight is I want to start off in Romans 4, just briefly, just to kind of pick up there. I do need to get my glasses out of my coat here, otherwise I'm going to be in trouble. Quoting from memory, which is okay as long as my memory's servicing my brain well, but doesn't always do that. So, Romans chapter 4. And again, I call your attention to the argument of Romans. Let me just uh, uh, cover that for you. Romans, obviously, is a, a central book in the New Testament, a very important book. And uh, it starts out with Paul giving an introduction, talking about his mission, then introducing the gospel in verses 17 and 18. Then he moves on in verse 18 through to the end of the chapter to speak about the fact that even people who have not heard the gospel are guilty before God because of natural revelation, general revelation. They know God inside and out. That uh, ability to know God has been given to them, but they suppress that knowledge. They hold it down. The Greek word that's used means to imprison, like, like you hold down a ball in a swimming pool. You know, that you forcefully do it. Uh, then it moves on in chapter 2 to deal with uh, men generally and how they are all guilty. And then, as we saw last week, at the end of chapter 2, it speaks about Jews and focusing on Jews. They boast in the law, but there's no point boasting in the law because they have transgressed the law. And then what Paul does is he turns that into an argument for, well, if a Gentile that doesn't know, know your law and isn't religious like you, following your Jewish ways, if he does things by his conscience that you don't do by following the law, then he's followed the law better than you have. <laughs> That's basically his argument. And so he says then that, that a Jew is not one, therefore, outwardly, and circumcision is not one that's outward, and that's just it. That qualifies you for heaven because you, with, you have the covenant token. Rather, it's an inward transformation. That does not mean, as we saw last week, does not mean that Paul is saying that Gentiles can be Jews. Do you see? He's, that's not the argument he's making. What he's talking about is justification before God. So that's the track that he's on there. Now in chapter 3, he moves on and talks about the condemnation of all mankind. And uh, ends up there at, uh, what, 323, 326 in, in there, talking about the fact that the wages of sin is death. All right? And then he moves on again and talks about justification is by faith. Now, in chapter 4 of Romans, we're dealing here with examples of justification by faith. And the most important example is Abraham. But Abraham, he's the father of the Jewish nation. So, Paul has got to tackle something. If he's going to deal with that justification in the case of Abraham, he has to tackle an important question. When was Abraham justified? after he was circumcised and within the covenant, which would have make, made his justification partly of works, do you see? Or 
before he was circumcised. And Genesis 15:6, which is quoted in that context, clearly is before he was circumcised. He's not circumcised until Genesis 17. So, that being the case, David is brought in. David understands that as well, that, that God uh, will not impute ma- uh, sin to certain people and they're blessed if God overlooks their sin because as, you know, we're all sinners. Um, then you, the argument moves on here in uh, chapter 4 and we get this language which is often seized upon by um, those people who would say that the nation of Israel and the promises to the nation of Israel, the covenant promises that we've studied in the last two lessons, uh, last two courses, that these are transformed. They like to use euphemistic terms. They like to say transformed or expanded because these are nice positive words. Yes? Uh, nice expansive words make you feel good. Feel good words, you see? Uh, whereas, you know, the real word is morphed or mutated um, or changed. And they don't like those words so much. Uh, the modern people that hold this position. And I talked a little bit and have talked before about replacement theology. That's what I call it. When somebody talks about replacement theology the way I have done, then quite clearly they're not a fan of it. You won't find somebody who holds replacement theology saying, I hold to replacement theology. All right? They don't like that. Okay? They don't like that at all. Um, Which is tough, as far as I'm concerned, because that's what they are. Uh, and I can I can prove it and have proved it to these people. I've quoted their own uh, sources back to them where the word replace is very clearly uh, written. And even in modern authors, they might not use the word replace, but they teach replacement. If you want, by the way, if you want to test a person on this and whether they're replacement theology, theologians or not, go to Matthew 21 with them. Okay? Um, I'm off subject here, but it's important that we at least kind of batten down this hatch, I think. If you'll turn to Matthew 21 quickly. Jesus here speaks to uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And um, he says here, after quoting from Psalm 118 in verse 42, he says in verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Okay? That's the verse. If you want to find out whether somebody believes in replacement theology, look at what they say about that verse or ask them to interpret that verse. Because a replacement theologian, or we'll use the... Uh, technical term, supersessionist, these people will always say that the kingdom of God will be taken from you, Israel, and given to a nation, the church, bearing the fruits of it. Okay? And that's what I call a replacement. You're replacing Israel with the church. Do you see? 
And all of them use that verse. Which verse was that? I That's Matthew 21, verse 43. Thank you. All of them use that verse. Um, why, am I, why, why am I stopping to, to say this? It's because um, this is, the, I think, the preponderant teaching, certainly in seminaries today, and uh, in many theological works. This is the teaching. Uh, there are some teachings that I haven't put up on the, on the board for you because they're kind of technical things. Uh, the cosmic temple teaching was becoming very popular where Eden is supposedly a temple and Adam was supposedly a, a priest uh, and stuff like that. And uh, the whole Bible story is supposed to be the expansion of God's temple throughout the universe. Uh, Adam failed. Jesus is the... Uh, the high priest now, and he's now extending the temple, the church, remember, is called a temple by Paul, throughout the world. You see, and that has an eschatology, doesn't it, go, that goes with it. Okay, there's no place for Israel in that uh, idea. So there are people, influential scholars, that are teaching that in big fat books, and people are really um, getting on board with that stuff. Again, it's just replacement theology, but it's another avenue that, at, that this kind of theology takes. Okay, It's another argument that's used. And uh, what we're learning here and in the previous two courses is that not only is it false, but it is unnecessary. It's unnecessary. And so... Often I think there's something going on um, in the thinking of these people um, that has got nothing to do with what the Bible says at all. It's got something to do with the way they, they bring their own constructions to the Bible. And so that's not what I'm trying to do here. I know I'm going to be guilty of it, but I don't want to do that. What I'm trying to do is to read the scriptures and bring out of the scriptures what's there. Do you see? All right. So, with that in mind, what about verse 13 in Romans 4? Can I ask a question first? Yeah. What do they say about verse 45? Of what? In, in Matthew. In Matthew. Oh. Oh, well, we're back in Matthew, are you? Uh, now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Yeah, they would agree with that. Yeah. Well, isn't that what it, the Lord is saying, though, that it's going to be taken away from them? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. But they say, yes, he is saying yeah. that. But they say that that's representative because Israel uh, rejected their Messiah. You know, Paul teaches that. That uh, they stand for the people of Israel. You see? And the early chapters of Acts, up to Acts 7, prove that to be so. Well, at the end of Acts, you see Paul saying, I'm you know, done with you. I'm going to the Gentiles. You see? So they use texts like that and they put them all together and have this this argument, which sounds persuasive, do you see? Sounds persuasive. Anyway, 
For the promise, now he's talking about justification, okay? He's talking about the promise uh, of a seed for Abraham, okay? The promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Therefore, what's to be believed has got nothing to do with the law, do you see? What he believed and therefore was justified about was didn't have the law in mind. So we can't claim the law as, as something that justifies us. This is Paul's argument. But what about this thing about being heir of the world? Well, they will, they will jump all over that and say, there you see, heir of the world. The land promises have been expanded from tiny Israel, which they love to call Palestine, okay, which is an anachronism, by the way, because Palestine was not uh, it was named by Hadrian in the second century AD to spite the Jews. All right? Uh, so it's Israel. If we're talking about uh, Paul's time, we're talking about Jesus' time, it's Israel that we're talking about. And um, uh, these people say, well, it's gone be- beyond you know, the small tract of land there and it's now expanded throughout all the world. And isn't that wonderful? Isn't that glorious? I mean, just imagine if you'd been promised wheels and you thought you were getting a bicycle and your dad bought you a Ferrari. You know, isn't that better? This is what they do. This is how they argue. And, uh, you know, the rep- reply is really a simple reply. Say, so, yeah, he promised you, the same person, the wheels. So the same person, whether he gets the, you know, the bicycle or the Ferrari, it's the same person that gets it. The person doesn't change. But in your theology, the people do change. It was Israel with a nation and the city and a Davidic kingdom. And now it's the church. Do you see? So the argument sounds persuasive, but it's a crock. doesn't work. Um, what's Paul t- here refer- referring to? Follow the argument. Follow the argument. Don't jump all over this to seize on a proof text for your theology. Just follow it out. Is he using the word world here to talk about the planet? Or is he talking in context about the descendants of Abraham and how Abraham will touch the nations of the world. Well, let's see. Is he talking about people or is he talking about land? Yes, you're right. And so he says here, it was not, um, midway through verse 13, not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, heirs of salvation, this is, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. What promise? The promise of justification of uh, imputed righteousness. Verse 6. Because the law brings about wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise, verse 6, might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He's writing to Rome. 
Jewish con- there are Jews in the, in the Roman congregation and there are Gentiles in the Roman congregation. Uh, I think I, I'm one of these that believe that, that the, the Roman congregation was initially Jewish. Then you had uh, the Jews kicked out of Rome under Claudius for two or three years and then they would come back, but they would come back to a church that was now predominantly Gentile, do you see? So you had a Jewish-Gentile mix in the church, which probably was predominantly Gentile. But you had this, this mix in the church. So, now the father of us all, Jew and Gentile. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Now, uh, the promise that he would be heir of the world is not a quotation of anything. That's just a general remark. Here's a quotation from Genesis which tells you what he means by verse 13. I have made you a father of many nations. That comes from the Abrahamic covenant or the preamble to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. In the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. This was a promise. God's promise is... uh, He's the only one that can promise something for sure and deliver on it ahead. Now, if we go back to our uh, wheels illustration, it doesn't work with Paul's point here. God promises something. Okay, He calls something that isn't as if it is. So, if God is promising something in that way of calling something that isn't as if it is, then that thing can't change. Do you see? If he promises uh, the, uh, the boundaries that he's uh, uh, marked out in Genesis chapter 15 to Israel, to Abraham and to his descendants, okay, then that can't change. Because he's calling what is, what he's, uh, sorry, what isn't, as if it was, but you will have this, do you see? But if it's, if it's, you're gonna, you're going to have this, and then he delivers something different, then this doesn't make sense. Why would Paul make this point that he's calling something that isn't as if it was, when actually he's not gonna deliver what he's saying he's gonna deliver? Do you see what I mean? Is that confusing? Alright. Did you say a little bit? All right. So, who, contrary to hope, verse 18, in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations. That's right there in the Abrahamic covenant. This is Genesis 12, uh, verse 3, and it's central. It's in Genesis 22 and other places. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Okay, now, the descendants here, obviously in... Um, most contexts that this is used would primarily refer to his seed through Abraham, through, sorry, through Isaac and then through Jacob and so on. But it also, because it talks to people, it also refers to other nations too. Because other nations do come from Abraham. Do you see? So, uh, he has... Uh, he has uh, 
tendrils out there in not just in the longevity of the Jewish people, but also among the Gentiles too. And then further, Paul can use this of people that exercise the same faith as Abraham and they become partakers, if you like, of Abraham's faith. He becomes the father of that faith, do you see? And that's the way Paul is talking, is uh, using this argument. Because he's talking about justification, he's not talking about land. These people read verse 13 and they say land, but he's not talking about land. He's, so world doesn't mean land, world just means people, Jews and Gentiles, throughout the world. And if you read it that way, which is the clear and obvious way of reading it, then I hope that you can see nothing changes. What we've read in the Old Testament, no need to jig it around, change it, you know, try and squeeze it into um, a doctrine that the Bible doesn't teach. But if you're hunting around because you've already made up your mind and you're hunting around for proof text, you're going to fall across anything that you think is going to Prove your point. Isn't that what Jehovah's Witnesses do? Isn't that what, you know, cultists tend to do? I'm not calling these people cultists, but I'm saying there is a common pattern in the way people use uh, the Bible to prove what they've already decided it teaches. Now, sometimes these people are Christians. But they're only Christians because they don't do that with the Christian doctrines. With the major Christian doctrines. They don't do that with justification. They don't do that with the death and resurrection of Jesus. They don't do that with the second coming of Jesus. Do you see? They take all that literally. But it's in these secondary or even tertiary doctrines, which are not the main fundamental ones, but they are important ones. Things like is there going to be a thousand year reign of Christ? Is there, you know, one or two or three peoples of God or whatever in the Bible story that we end up with? Uh, those, what they do is that they don't take it literally. What they do is that they import what I've called their default, the default setting of human thinking, which is independent thinking. Okay, they're no longer under what the Word of God says. Now, they're deciding what the Bible says and they're coming to the Bible to find a proof text. Do you see? And they will argue and argue and argue around that. And you say, well, hold on a minute. There's no need to come to the Bible like that. Just It can be interpreted this way without you doing that. But they've decided that that's what it's going to be teaching because that suits what they've independently arrived at. Okay. How does the Greek help here? Does it give us anything? The world that would mean people? No, the Greek word is cosmos. cosmos. And uh, uh, I think I said last week, did I say that? I, I, I've said before, I'm not, I'm not sure when I said what to whom after time. <laughs> um, that covers it all. Yes, <laughs> uh, that's me. Yeah, that's definitely me. Um, but... And I, I don't want to tread on people's toes, but, but um, uh, you probably all know this doctrine or you've heard of it, okay? The five points of Calvinism, okay? 
And I'm not going to go through all this because it's not a systematic theology. I'm Calvinistic in the fact that I believe that God's decision is always before man's decision. But I think this is a human invention. Okay? This, in fact, it's a human invention of the 19th century. Okay? It's not very, even very old. Uh, but this one here, particularly the L, which is limited atonement, which they don't like, they call it particular redemption, which is fine, they can call it what they want, but it's limited atonement. And what it means is that Christ's atonement, the merits of his atonement, are limited only to the elect. Okay, so it wouldn't make any sense to them for Christ's meritorious atonement and blood to be shed for people that didn't come to Christ and weren't saved. That would be a waste, they say. And so they say in order to preserve the, the quality of Christ's redemptive work and the success of Christ's redemptive work, obviously all the people for whom Christ died will come to faith. And the rest, obviously Christ didn't die for them. Do you see? But what have I just done? No, I've what? For God so loved the world. No, 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 no. I no, don't, don't go. What have I just done? Well, you've limited Christ and his and his death. I've just used man's reasoning. I've just reasoned you to that conclusion, didn't I? And you're right. Okay, just you're a little premature, but but you are you're right. What are we going to do with with those texts that seem to teach the opposite of that? Okay, well then we will have to go to that text and we'll have to get a, play fisticuffs with that text a bit. Okay, so world in John 3.16 and John 3.6.17 cannot mean the whole of sinful mankind, cosmos, okay? Although it can mean the planet too. Um, in, instead, it has to be limited to the elect. Why? Well, because we've already decided that it's limited to the elect. So it must be limited to the elect. So it's God so loved the elect that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever of the elect, which is a tautology, believes has everlasting life. And then they also have, they've added to this doctrine the fact that faith is a gift only to the elect. So the atonement's only for the elect and now faith is only for the elect. Do you see? And since it's a gift, it's only given to the elect. And it's the same argumentation. God wouldn't give faith to somebody who wasn't elect. Do you see? And then we go about in Scripture, we go about looking for proof texts for it. Do you see what I mean? This This is the way, and these are good men. These are good men. And they don't see this. They don't see this. I didn't see this for years. And that sounds terribly arrogant. But um, what I'm saying is that I, I think I have seen this, okay? Because I ask questions that a lot of people don't ask. Maybe because they're not interested and I'm a bit peculiar about things like that. But I ask these questions. Why? What, is, what, what makes people come to these kinds of conclusions and call it biblical? Other people come to opposite conclusions and call it biblical. 
well, you know, there's something going on here and it's not the Bible, it's the trouble. So that's the, that's kind of um, what we're constantly having to watch out for when it comes to human reasoning. Okay? Yeah? All right. So we don't, do, it's exactly the same with replacement theology. Exactly the same. World, it's got to mean this because of the church, and the church includes uh, both Jew and Gentile. Okay? And Jesus is the true Israel. And we're in Jesus. And, and the church is called a temple. So they don't need another temple anymore because the church is now the temple. You see how, again, the reasoning comes together and come, uh, spits out this conclusion. And then we come to the Bible to try and ratify the conclusion. And we'll seize on anything that sounds even close to saying what we want to say. That's a digression, I know. But probably a useful one, maybe, for you. So um, you can understand when you're dealing with someone like that and you, and you say, what's it say? You know, and they, it's like they don't see it. It's like they don't see it. If they believe something, they're blinded. Yeah. Yeah, I'm... Um, okay, I'm not... Uh, again, let me, let me just... If, since I'm treading on people's toes, I'll tread on somebody else's toes. So, tongue speaking, okay? Tongue speaking. Okay? When you're dealing with tongue speakers, you go to, uh, I will go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 21-22. What tongues for? I'll ask them. They're a sign. Who for? For you? Are they a private language for you? No. no. They're, for, they're a sign for unbelievers. And then we go to the book of Acts and we see three instances of where that's the case. Now, don't, when it says unbelievers, not necessarily for those people that don't believe in Christ, it's those people that don't believe something about, you know, the message. Okay? But so that's a, that's the only doctrinal passage in Scripture about tongues. Tells you what it is. But somebody who thinks that they have this private prayer language, this angelic, you know, bibbidi bobbidi boo language, um, these people, they, you can't get them to look at that. For I mean, straight away they will say, "Yeah, but he that speaks in unknown tongues speaks to himself." Uh, yeah, your point is that they're going away, you see. In other words, they've made up their minds what they're going to believe and they're going to find Bible texts that support it. It's the same mentality. What ties all of these things together? What ties a Jehovah's Witness also to this? Because they'll go to Isaiah, was it 44? You know, you are my witnesses. Okay? They'll go to Revelation 17, 144,000. Alright? And there's their proof text. My father is greater than I. There's a proof text that Jesus isn't God. Do you see? They will go there. Do you see? And they will ignore the other scriptures. They'll ignore everything else. 
The same with justification by faith when it comes to Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. Okay? Yes. Um, yeah. There's another piece of mentality here, which, uh, which, again, what I'm saying, what I'm teaching here, is very important to grasp because it doesn't just have implications in biblical interpretation; it has implications in the rest of life too. We do this; we think independently in the rest of life, independently from Scripture, and that's why we come up with things like evolution. And you'll find evolutionists will use exactly the same um, way of dealing with evolution. Evolution's true. Yeah, but what about this fact over here? Never mind the fact over there. Evolution's true. Do you see? And so we're going to go around and look for a missing link in the fossil record or look at DNA and we're going to come to a conclusion that we want to find. Do you see? In the evidence. And we're going to ignore the welter of evidence that doesn't agree with us. What ties all of these things together? Independent thinking. Do you see? It's our default. It's our default. So. So, um, that was just a very brief and... um, not the main thing that I was talking, wanted to talk about tonight. Uh, so in Romans chapter, by the end of Romans chapter 4, it's justification by faith, folks. And, and uh, chapter 5 opens up with this declaration about therefore being justified by faith. Okay? We have peace with God. Why, what kind of peace with God? Judicial peace with God. We're not under the wrath of God anymore. So chapter 5 starts off dealing with that and says, yeah, well, but it doesn't mean that we're, because we've got peace with God, we've got peace with man, we're going to get trouble. And then from 12 to 21 in chapter 5, you have this other doctrine brought in about the two representative men, Adam and Christ. Okay? Kind of the central thing that Adam, if, if those people um, who will not trust Christ and, and are not right with God, they are counted in Adam. Okay? Who's their representative? I'm not talking about, I mean, um, he's not necessarily a federal head. Uh, that's another uh, thing that I can't deal with right here. Um, but he is kind of the head of that race. Okay? And then you have Christ, and he's the head of that race. And you've got to be in Christ. And then chapter 6 starts to open up by dealing with those that are in Christ. They will manifest certain behaviors uh, in them. And chapter 7, yeah, but even though they manifest these behaviors, they still have trouble with sin. Okay? So you have two principles or two laws going on, uh, one of which... Uh, is just the law of sin that you find in your members. That's sin. You're going to be a sinner until the day you die. You're going to struggle with it until the day you die. But then you, you can decide with your mind, with this other principle that God has put in there, to obey the law of Christ. Chapter 8, therefore, there's no, now no condemnation in those that are in Christ Jesus. Do you see? And then he wraps it up by getting eschatological, which is what we're going to do now. Alright, so we're in the middle of chapter 8, 
and verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. This is where he's leading up to. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We are related to to God now. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. And heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Uh, he, he, limp, he, he lumps in suffering there. I wish he wouldn't. But he lumps in suffering there because Christ suffered. And if you're going to be on Christ's side in, in a world that's contrary to Christ, you will encounter it to one degree or another. But now he's, he's brought in this, this uh, relationship and it's the closest of relationships. It's the adoption relationship. We're children of God. So now he can move on and talk about what will be. And this is where he starts to bring in, again, what I've called... Let's take this off. The creation project. Because he doesn't just deal here with flying over to heaven and, and that's it. Okay, Now he's talking about us and the earth and our relationship to this planet. If we're saved and God's made the, the planet, how to save people on a cursed planet or save people on a planet that's uh, got people on it that are contrary to God and got thorns and thistles on it and all these other nasty things on it. How do, how do you bring these two things together? Um, to be saved is great, but it's not particularly good news if you have to carry on in a world with disease and sickness and old age and and uh, you know having to wear these and and uh, not being able to play the sports you used to play 20 years ago and chocolate makes you fat and all of these other things. Okay. So, where's the fun in that? So, this is basically where he's going, okay? And he says, For I consider that the sufferings, which he just talked about, of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory, kavod, which is, uh, the idea is uh, weight, okay? Weight. Which shall be revealed in us. Not about us first, but in us. So the first transformation or, or the first idea of glory is in us personally. For the earnest expectation of the creation, you might have the creature, which just means created order, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Okay, so now you have uh, glory held in abeyance here um, there's expectation here of the created order so here's man or woman and these, this is the environment that they inhabit and so he's depicting here a tension 
And he's saying, uh, using an anthropomorphism, that the created order is expecting eagerly the what he calls the uh, manifestation or the revealing, sorry, he says manifestation later, the revealing of the sons of God. What's the revealing? This, okay, revealed in us. Do you see that? The previous verse. Okay? Now, glory being revealed in us. I'm looking around here and I'm, you know, I'm sorry, but glory has not been revealed in any of you. (laughs) Or me. So, there's something great coming up. Let's read on. For the creation was subjected to futility. doesn't say when, but we know when, if we know the biblical story. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected, subjected it in hope. Okay, in hope. Why? Because the creation, even though it fell, still part of a project. And it's going to be glorified, do you see? So he depicts earth in this futile bondage that it's in, uh, anticipating the final release of salvation in human beings, who were, of course, the crown of creation. We're whom this planet was made for. Do you see? Because the creation itself also, there's that, that's a very important word, also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Here we're not talking about, uh, I feel, um, you know, exhilarated that I'm a child of God. It's not talking about feelings here, it's talking about a transformation, a transfiguration of us. Liberty from what? The corruption of the world, the corruption of our bodies, the corruption all around us. It's talking about physical creation, so it's talking about our physical bodies. For we know that the whole creation groans and labours with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruit of the first fruits of the Spirit. That's what we've got right now. Nothing like what we're going to get. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, which is spoken about in that previous passage, uh, verse uh, 15, the redemption of our body. Do you see that? So, why is this, why does this tie into what we've been studying now? Well, because remember, I've, I've said the creation is a project. God's working. He's doing stuff. He's not given up on this world. It is fallen. And thorns and thistles do come up. And diseases are there. And there are rapacious creatures out there. And other nasty things that are out there. And people are nasty too. But... Um, when this glory is revealed in us, it's talking about the transformation of our bodies. And when we are transformed, what's going to happen to the created order? That's going to be transformed too. Do you see that? That's eschatology. 
right there. Okay, question. We're not talking about heaven here, are we? What are we talking about? Earth. Earth. Folks, if you've got a theology of the end times that has nothing to do with the transformation of this planet, that's an unbiblical eschatology. It's an unbiblical understanding. If you think we all, you know, this planet just burns up and we all fly away to the kingdom in the clouds and so on, that's an unbiblical eschatology. But so many of God's people have held that view. Do you see? But this passage, well, everywhere else, doesn't teach that. Now, if you die, Paul says, okay, in 2 Corinthians, he says what? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And where's he? He's at the right hand of God in heaven. So you go to heaven. Loved ones go to heaven who are in Christ. Um, but um, but that's, that's just where they're waiting, as it were. Yes? That's not the final conclusion to the story. Neither would you expect it to be if you believe that God is not a God of, of waste or, or second thoughts. Or, well, that didn't work, so let's try this one. You know, God's not like that. When God creates the world and it falls, it's because he allows it to fall, but he's not given up on the world, he's not given up on the planet. He's going to redeem the planet. It's part of our eschatology. So, now we can go to chapter 9. Is that the right time over there now? No, it hasn't moved. It hasn't moved. <laughs> no, All right, because it's, yeah. What is the time now? It's 7.30. 7.30. It's going to be right time soon now. All right. <laughs> <laughs> chapter 9. Now, now, he goes on in chapter 8 and he talks about, the, you know, how this is secured for us because of the merits of Christ. Yes? That's the end. Nothing can, can take this away from us. It's secure. End of part one, as far as the epistle to the Romans is concerned. Now, don't, there isn't a massive cleavage between Romans 8 and Romans 9. That would be a mistake. Okay? But what you find in Romans is you find... Uh, 1 through 8 is talking about salvation, okay, and issues to do with salvation, okay, our present condition. But then there's a question that comes up, and the question has to do with, yeah, but what about God's promises to Israel? Do you see? What about that? I mean, it's all very well, Paul, you're teaching this wonderful doctrine about the church and so on, but what about Israel, you know? There's a whole lot of scripture that has a whole bunch of stuff in there. So, are you going to just ignore it? No, he's not going to ignore it. So, chapters 9 
through 11, okay, we can call this A here, are part B of the same kind of argument that has to do with salvation and present condition, do you see? Because that's a theological question that he, that he has to address. And we're glad that he does. All we have to do is pay attention now to what he's going to say for three chapters. Okay, This has proven to be, and you'll forgive me for being uh, sarcastic sometimes. I, Brits can be sarcastic. Uh, see, it's not my fault. Um, <laughs> but... Um, but many, many Christians, because they've already made up their mind what the Bible must be teaching, okay, they're going to read these chapters wrong. They are not going to pay attention to what Paul tells them he's talking about. They're even going to build doctrines from things that, examples that he brings up in chapter 9 that he's not even trying to make. So let's hope that we don't fall into that error too. So we're going to go through carefully these chapters. They're closely argued. He will quote Old Testament passages, prophets as well. So we have to examine them. We'll have to look at these things. And we'll have to go slowly through here, um, just allowing him to to teach us and uh, not forsaking what we've learned so far. So he starts out with a bit of autobiography in verse 1 of chapter 9. I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. So he's in earnest here. That I have great sorrow and continually continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren my countrymen according to the flesh who are Israelites who's he talking about? Jews okay he's talking about Israelites Jews to whom pertain the adoption the glory the covenants the giving of the law the service of God that would be the uh, sanctuary and the promises of whom the fathers of whom are the fathers that's the patriarchs and from whom according to the flesh Christ came he was a Jew who is over all eternally blessed God Amen or God blessed forever that should be a deity verse it's not a deity verse there throw your Bible out yet one that teaches the deity of Christ there that that the Greek does teach the deity of Christ there. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Okay, so what's the word of God here? Well, here he's obviously talking about the word of God to Israel. Remember, he's writing Romans. He's writing circa AD 58. There's not much of the New Testament knocking around. He's talking about the Jewish scriptures, okay? That's the word of God. And so, he says, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. Now, 
This is where, again, you can see it, can't you? The, um, those that believe that the church is the new Israel in Christ, they're going to be hovering around the New Testament, you know, trying to find texts which will teach that the church is the new Israel. And so it's not surprising to find them circling around this text. They do. And they say, hey, you see, they're not all of Israel. Who are of Israel? But who, reading the Old Testament, didn't know that? I've brought that to your attention several times in previous courses. I brought it to your attention that the prophets speak about a remnant of Israel. And it speaks to Israel in uh, words that castigate, but then talks about that there will be a faithful few. Do you see? So they're not all Israel, they're of Israel. Do you want, it's, not, it's not difficult. If these promises were made to America, all right, but they were made to the faithful in America, you would understand what, what Paul meant. They're not all of America, they're of America. What does he mean? That it's another country? No! <laughs> he just means that not all Americans, all inhabitants, do you see? And so, um, he's just teaching something that is clearly spelled out in the Old Testament. Jesus himself spoke about this, you know. Um, we've gone to that text in uh, Matthew 21. It'll be taken from you and given to a nation that deserves it. You know, the nation's not another nation. It's just, it's the same nation, but it's another generation. Or it's another, it's a nation that they're not part of. They're Jews, but they're not part of that nation. Do you see? All right. So, nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham. Um, they're not all children in the sense of the promises made to Israel. Because Abraham had a bunch of children. Okay? Now he's going to focus in on what he's talking about but in Isaac, Genesis 21, in Isaac your seed shall be called. So he's going to talk about here, um, let me put all this up here. Let's just follow the reasoning. So he's talking about Abraham through and a promises to him through Isaac. Alright? Now folks, you're not related to Isaac. You're related to Abraham by faith. Do you see that? We saw it in Galatians 3 last week, and we saw it today in Romans 4, but you're not related to Isaac. Unless you're a Jew. Okay? All right. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, because he's burdened about his children, the brethren according to the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Okay, 
So what he's trying to say is here that it's not merely those that just happen to be connected physically to Abraham. Whether they be um, children of um, Sarah or um, what's the other wife called? Or, you know, Keturah or, or uh, Hagar or whatever. Okay, it's through this line of promise particularly. And this line of promise is a covenant line. Okay, thinking hats back on. What have I said about the fulfillment of the covenants? The covenants can't be fulfilled because we're a bunch of, you know, sinners. And so were uh, Israel. But the covenants are made through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and God is obligated to keep them, so he's going to have to save some, do you see, in order to do it. Paul's thinking this way because that's what the Old Testament has trained him to think like. And so, for this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. That's chapter 18 of Genesis. Not only this, but when, that's the first illustration, okay? Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. Now they would say, our father. Ah, there you are, you see. Paul's saying, us, the Roman church. No. He's already delimited who he's talking about. He says, me, my brethren who are Israelites. That's who he's talking about. So he's talking about our, as far as Israelites are concerned. Uh, By our father Isaac. For the children not yet being born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Now, that's a prophecy. That's a prediction of God. Okay, Esau was the oldest, but... Yeah. Jacob comes along. Now... um, That is an illustration of verse 11. Neither of them did anything. In fact, if if you look at the lives of Esau and Jacob, Esau's the nicer guy. Jacob's a rascal. I don't like him. Okay? So it's not got anything to do with works, good or evil. It's got to do with the purpose of God according to election. Okay? Now, um, we can, we could say that on a human level, Esau despised his birthright. Jacob valued it, even though he was a cad. All right, so that's how it came about on a human level. God didn't make Esau despise his birthright or Jacob be a cad. Okay, but God knew about that, and so therefore he could prophesy. Do you see the elder will? Oh, the younger will serve the, the elder will serve the younger. Sorry, and that's election. There, that God has has chosen that to occur. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And so, you know, one of my favourite guys is John Owen, the Puritan. But but John Owen will pick on up a verse like that and say, "See, God hates the non-elect." But, no, because this is not from a quotation from Genesis anymore. 
this is a quotation from Malachi. He's not talking, therefore, about the person Jacob and he's not talking about the person Esau. He's talking about Israel and um, Edom. Do you see? Edom being representative, uh, if you like, of uh, non-elect nations. So what Paul is doing, you see, is that he's just getting a bit of information. He's expecting you to follow his reasoning here. But you're only going to follow his reasoning if you actually believe the Old Testament. None of this is difficult. Okay, I mean, you find this stuff in the Old Testament easily. Now, Malachi, do you remember the book of Malachi? Malachi, well, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets, and what does he do? He's taking issue with particularly the priests. Okay? Taking issue with them because they are not godly. They are um, just offering God any old animals. They are not leading or teaching the people and so on. They say they are, but they're not. And Malachi has to reason with them. You say this, but what about this? What, what are you really doing? Take a look at what you're doing. Um, and then you find that the election language uh, later on, oh, sorry, uh, sorry it, it comes through in chapters 3 and 4, the covenant language comes through, speaking about Christ and Elijah and, and, and the second coming, is, uh, features prominently in those chapters. But the Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated right, is right at the beginning of Malachi, and it's just about the fact that despite how ungodly they are, they're still elect. And that, do you see, ties right in with what Paul's, the point Paul is making. Despite the fact that Malachi has to remonstrate with them, and they're very ungodly, they're still elect. Yes? So Paul expects you to know your Bible. That's the thing. He expects you to know your Bible. And so, that so far, so good. I hope you can see. By the way, what's he talking about? Is he talking about justification anymore? No. He left off at the end of chapter 8. Now he's talking about Israel and the promises given to Israel. Okay? If you read this as as salvation justification language, you're going to read um, uh, election into this, election within who is in Christ. Do you see? And you're going to say, uh, oh, Jacob have I loved, that's me because I'm, I'm saved. Esau have I hated, that's you because you're not elect. Do you see? I mean, in the, in the, the worst scenarios of hyper-Calvinism. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about Israel, who are an elect nation above the other nations. He's not talking about the church here. What shall I say, shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is there unrighteousness with God because he chose um, to go through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob rather than Esau? Well, no, you can't say, first of all, you can't say that there's unrighteousness with God um, because Esau despised his birthright and he despised the covenant. So, you know, 
And you can't, you can't point at Jacob or the history of Israel and say, well, you're a backsliding bunch, you see, because it's not going to do with that. I mean, if that was the case, nobody would be, would be saved. Nobody uh, would be rightly related to, to God. And this would be a very thin book. Okay? <laughs> so, so is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Of course not. Let, you know, we've already established that God is, is good. Okay? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Alright, this is not God saying, I'm going to be capricious. I'm going to be arbitrary. That's not the context of this remark. Okay? This is from, uh, what, Exodus 33. So let's go back there. This is the covenant. We're in the covenant chapters here in Exodus. And uh, let me get that there. You'll see that there is an important context. This has to do with the the uh, answer to the prayer of Moses to see God. Do you remember that? Show me your glory. And uh, the the uh, the great prayer in this chapter is in verse fifteen. If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. That's Moses. Look, don't just bring us up without your presence. We need your that relationship. And so, uh, he says, please show me your glory in verse 18 there. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on him, I'm sorry, on whom I will have compassion. He says, you cannot see my glory. Okay, so here's the thing. We're all sinners, okay? But God, because he's God, because he's good, he is going to be gracious on whomever he's going to be gracious and he's going to have compassion on whomever he's going to have compassion on. But there's a context here. And if you look at um, verse 5 of the next chapter, it says this. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord, just like he said he would, because God means what he says. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, vengeful and spiteful and capricious. No. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness of truth. These are universal standards, okay? These are not arbitrary labels that we stick on there like the Muslims do. Do you see? These values are are the real values, the real things, because they come from God. Okay? God cannot be arbitrary and be any of these things. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. He's just visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Because sin has, uh, you know, 
it has a knock-on effect. And punishment of that family in a theocracy is important. But notice, you've, this third and fourth generation in uh, those that, uh, that he's visiting iniquity on, but he's keeping mercy and truth for thousands. Do you see that? See the contrast? And so, what's going on there is that God, you don't question God, he's good. And he will do things in, in, um, in line with his nature. Which means the ones he has mercy on, he has mercy on for his own reasons. The ones he has compassion on, he has compassion for his own reasons. But none of us deserve it. Do you see? But you can't charge God for that because he doesn't have compassion on everybody. Okay? So, so then, it is not of him who wills. You can't will to be right with God. You can't will to be, um, you know, elect. Nor of him who runs. Well, what's running? It's kind of a work, isn't it? You see? It's putting some effort in. It's not, you know, not the person that runs, but of God who shows mercy. What is he trying to do? What is he trying to argue for? He's trying to argue for the choice of God. The election of God for Israel. It's of God. If it wasn't that way round, okay, then, well, we'd all be we'd all be damned. There'd never be any hope. But he has chosen Israel. This is what the prophets continually say. You Remember Hosea? You marry, go and marry a woman of adulteries. Why? That doesn't seem like a very good idea to me. Because you're going to be the illustration for the, my marriage, my relationship to Israel. Do you see? And that's, that illustrates it. Why? Why does God want to do that? Because he's have mercy on who he has mercy on. He's just that kind of a God. He wants that relationship with the people who he's called by his own name. So, in Zechariah he says, you know, you're the apple of my eye. So, um, the argument, you see, is sustained for the relationship and the election of Israel. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, if he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. All right. Now, Pharaoh, we're in Romans 9, verse 17. Now, Pharaoh was told, okay, to let, um, let God's people go. And he didn't. He says, who is this God? Oh, hold on a minute. Paul's actually addressed that. What do you mean, who is this God? According to Romans 1, Pharaoh knew who that God was. Do you see? Paul's already addressed it in the first part of the epistle. You have to connect Romans 9 with Romans 1. 
once you understand that we're all guilty and we hold down the knowledge of God in unrighteousness, and Pharaoh was doing that, okay, again and again and again and again, then you'll understand. Pharaoh hardened his heart against God, so God hardened his heart. Do you say? Judicial. Because he's guilty. He knows exactly what God um, Moses is referring to. And so, he's using Pharaoh, who's a sinner and who's a recalcitrant individual, to show his glory and power in him. And so he may. Pharaoh's got no argument here. Pharaoh said, who is this God? I don't know him. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Well, he willed to harden Pharaoh. Sinner. Guilty. That's an illustration, again, of the same point that is being made. But you see, if you're not reading this correctly, you're going to read hyper-Calvinism into this. You're going to use this as the proof text for God's damning the non-elect. Which is exactly what they do. But he's not talking about justification. He's not talking about the church. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Now, this is not the vague notion of God. This is God, the Holy One. This is God, the the one you know. This is your creator. Who are you to argue against him? Or to even bring that accusation against God? We're all sinners. Paul's taken a good part of the book to prove that. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed... Say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Now this is, again, used by hyper-Calvinists to say that Pharaoh was made that way okay, for God to damn or God to do what he did with him. And then they, they extrapolate from that to say the non-elect are there to damn for the glory of God. Do you see? And you can't accuse God. Who art thou to, to uh, reply against God is the proof text that they... Uh, trot out you see and they think that they've answered you because they've quoted a verse the problem is that it's not talking about justification it's not talking about the salvation of somebody coming to Christ it's talking about the election of Israel do you see and he says well the thing formed say to him who formed it why have you made me like this well Listen, God didn't make us sinners. We're born sinners because we're connected to Adam. Paul has proved that in Romans 5. But our sin is our own sin. Paul's proven that in Romans 2. So you can't, you can't throw all of Romans out and, and, and bring forward that argument. Why has God made me like No, he hasn't. And, you know... We've, we've already dealt with that. That's not an argument that a sinner can bring before God. Does the potter have power over the clay 
from the same lump to make one vessel for honour and another for dishonour. Yes. What's the lump? What's the lump? That's a very important question. Sinful humanity. The lump is sinful humanity. But notice it's one lump. It's not two lumps. It's not it's not an elect lump and a non-elect lump. It's one lump. But so they're all one lump. They're all conc- he's concluded all under sin. Do you see that? Now that's being, that being the case, and these, this is again, this is why you have to follow the argument of Romans. It's why you have to you, you have to bring what you've already learned into these chapters. Say, well, he's already dealt with this stuff, and. Uh, when you do that, what you find is it's talking about, well, God can make a, a sinner into a vessel of honour. He can have mercy, but he can also make a sinner, like Pharaoh, into a vessel of wrath. There's no, you can't charge God with anything, any wrongdoing there. And then Paul he, he, he clears this up because he says, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Well, what prepared them for destruction? God's capricious decree before the foundation of the... No! No! Their sin. And that he might make known the riches of his glory, his mercy, on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, because he's not forgetting the covenant promises. He's not forgetting this great story of God. It's not all about the church, folks. But remember that the church is not a surprise to Paul. And again, do, we, do I have to put this diagram up? So you've got the Old Testament here, you've got cross, and then you've got the second coming, okay, and you've got the kingdom, and then you've got this thing here. Because these are all these promises and covenants include Israel, okay, but Israel rejects Christ and he gets crucified. And he comes back here and the covenant promises for Israel uh, are fulfilled when Israel gets redeemed through the new covenant. What about this? Do you see? This is where the church is. Church is made up of mainly Gentiles and that's important to Paul's argument soon. But also some Jews too. But it's a category on its own. Yet, it is fully in line with the covenant promises because God said that the, the promise through Abraham goes through all the nations. In you, all the world will be blessed. Well, that includes the church, doesn't it? Of course it does. Now, I haven't taken you to Ephesians yet where Paul's going to say that the church is a new thing. Okay, but we'll, we'll go there. Um, we've got plenty of time because yeah. <laughs> um, 
but we'll we'll go there probably next week. Right. <clears throat> so, what's he going to do now? All right. So he's going to quote Hosea. He's going to quote an Old Testament prophet. Okay. How's he going to do it? What's he, what's he trying to prove here? Well, he's been talking about the church's glory, our glory in verse, in chapter 8. But Israel was promised glory too. Alright? End of Zephaniah, Zechariah, uh, sorry, Isaiah 62 and many places. So, this being the case, uh, not just of the Jews, who he's been talking about, but also of the Gentiles. He brings that back in, because remember what I said about Romans. 1 through through 8, he's talking about the church, okay, in a sense, but then you've got this question about Israel. But it's part of the same argument. It's A and B. So he's going to connect the two, do you see? So you don't lose track of what he's talking about. Because there must be a connection. So also the Gentiles. Alright, so he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Alright. Now, that's in Hosea 2. That's in that great transformative chapter where God calls himself, he says, you will not just call me master, you'll call me husband. He's talking to Israel. Okay? He talks there about the transformation of the animal kingdom in that same chapter. Reminds you of Isaiah 11, the wolf and the lamb chapter, I guess, in Isaiah 65. So, um, the question is here, um, is he, in verse... 24, bringing in the Gentiles into the Hosea chapter, or is he just focusing on Israel? I think he's bringing also, he's bringing in the Gentiles here into this, and it's not a surprise because, um, well, we'll look in a second, but that's part of the expectation in the covenants. Do you see? All right, so let's go to Hosea 2. And I'm sorry we have to do this, but we, this is very important that we follow Paul's reasoning here. And we pick up on his logic. These are Paul's scriptures. So Hosea chapter 2. Uh, we're quoting here from verse 23, the last verse. But, uh, and uh, chapter one, uh, 1 also has this. Um, probably chapter 1 that he's quoting here. Uh, in chapter 1, it's Hosea uh, 1.10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Abrahamic covenant. 
And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, because of their sins, there it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall gather to be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And then uh, you have this great chapter in chapter 2, and we'll... Um, Start in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness, will speak comfort to her. I will bring her her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. There's no doubt who he's talking about here. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master, I will take from her mouth the name of the ba- names of the Baals and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant with them, with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground, the creation language. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. That reminds you of Isaiah 2. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. The earth will answer with grain and new wine with oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. Jezreel is a very fertile valley. Okay, That's that's a very, very fertile uh, place. That's where uh, Ahab had his castle and he wanted Naboth's vineyard as a vegetable garden. Uh, Then I will sow her for myself in the earth and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. Okay, primary focus in Hosea is Israel. But Paul is saying, because of the Abrahamic connection, the Abrahamic covenant that's quoted in chapter 1, that it doesn't just stop with, uh, with uh, Israel, it also goes out to the Gentiles. Okay? So, and by the way, notice here that Hosea in his own language just say they're not all Israel, they're of Israel. You see? He just says it in, more, in different terms. All right, so back to Romans 9, verse 27. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Concerning Israel. Now, because he says concerning Israel here, it's possible that the Hosea quotation is also just concerning Israel. Do you see that? And that he's just, what you find at the end of verse 24 is just Paul putting a little bit of a footnote on there saying, yeah, I haven't forgotten about the Gentiles, but we're talking about Israel now. Do you see? So that is also a valid interpretation of the Hosea prophecy. That has less, it actually has less problems with it. But there's no doubt here about the Isaiah prophecy, it's definitely concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of the sea shall, uh, Israel shall be the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Because why? Because not all Israel is of Israel. For he will finish 
the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. That's what he's proved in Romans. But Israel... Pursuing the law. See, he's just, he's so, he's heartbroken because of this. Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not obtained the law of righteousness. Why? Because it did not seek it by faith. This is the problem. This is why Israel has not entered into its uh, covenant blessings. But as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it, written, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Well, Israel has not believed in it. That's the thing. Do you see? But, of course, Paul, being a good theologian, has proved that we have believed in him, Gentiles, and so we are saved. Do you see? But it doesn't mean that we inherit the land or the promises to Israel. He's still not got there yet, but what he's done is he's said, look, this is the problem. This is Israel's problem. They were elected, not because of any righteousness, not because of any works. Okay? They're all a bunch of sinners. But they're elect. And there are promises, covenant promises, that they will be restored. And he quotes from Hosea and Isaiah. So, that's as far as he's got with, with, the, um, with the doctrine. Now in chapter 10, and what's the, uh, the time now? Okay, plenty of time. Um, now in chapter 10, he's going to repeat where his heart's at. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. This is what's killing him. By the way, I hope you can see here that you can have a zeal for God and go to hell. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's a kind of a summary of what he's taught in the first eight chapters. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above. You see, <clears throat> If you say who shall ascend to heaven, to ascend means you have a right to go there. You see, Elijah was called up to heaven. Do you see? Um, G, uh, uh, John was called up to heaven in the book of Revelation. Do you see that? The two witnesses in Revelation 11, are called up. Their dead bodies come to life and they're called up to heaven. You don't get there unless you're called up. Okay, You can't ascend yourself. Do you see? So, 
If you're seeking to ascend, you're bringing Christ down. He's the one that did ascend for us. Do you see? So that's to bring Christ down again. I don't need him. I don't need his ascension. Or, who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Because Christ, descending into the abyss is to, you know, go to punishment. Well, Christ has taken our punishment. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. It's not, it's on your mouth. It's not anything, it's not works, not anything you do. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's a parallelism, okay? It, it, be careful not to say that if you don't um, confess Christ as your saviour, you can't be saved. It's not saying that, okay? But it's saying, it's saying here that the two things go together. Alright? The change of heart will change your mouth. (laughs) Alright? So that righteousness and salvation go together and the heart's transformation and the mouth's transformation go together. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, so, covenant theologians, back on uh, the uh, replacement um, wagon again on verse 12, because it says there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. But what's he talking about in this context? He's talking about how do we attain righteousness and how Israel has not attained righteousness because they've done it by works. But this is the only way to attain righteousness, both for Gentiles and for Jews. He's tying his arguments together. You see? How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how, they sh- how shall they preach unless they be sent? That's a good passage when you're calling a pastor. Okay. Make sure he's sent. Um, Two minute digression. Okay. Because I can't resist it. I was asked this question yesterday. So, uh, uh, when it says, pray, you know, the harvest is white and so on, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send out uh, workers, laborers into his harvest, okay? What's your job? What's your job there? To pray. What's God's job? Okay. Sometimes the church has got that the wrong way round. Okay, they think it's the church's job to send people out. Yeah. That's what's messed up the church. Yeah. Okay? It isn't the, the amount, okay? It's the right people. Right. It's, it's the right people. Okay? Not the amount. See, one of them is pragmatism. One of them is, is let's fix this by throwing a bunch of people at it. Okay? The other one is, Let's, even if a, a trickle of people go out, if they're qualified and they're called and the right people and God sent them, they'll do the job. Do you see? There's God's way and there's man's way of doing things. And here, how shall they preach unless they are sent? You've got to make sure that these, whoever 
you know, you if you get to a point where you're interviewing a pastor or you're thinking about calling a pastor, make sure he's called, <laughs> sent. He has a strong sense of that. Okay, not, uh, yeah, I knew I was called to preach when I was six, you know. It's like, you knew that, you didn't know anything else, but you knew, yeah, come on. So, um, yeah, I mean, you understand, I'm not saying that God can't make that impression on, on somebody, but I'm saying don't, I wouldn't treat that. Somebody says that to me, I'm sorry. That's your personal opinion, you know. That doesn't mean anything to me. You need to convince me that you actually are called. Um, a particular church. I'm sorry? You know, a lot of times with, when we have call pastors, they're candidating for more than one church. And they're deciding which church they're going to go to. It's, um, that's an interesting question. I can't go into it right now. No, it's a very good question. Um, but because that's the case, okay, uh, first of all, you have to understand that we have turned a candidacy into a, just a job application, okay, which has made it difficult for the p- true people that have been called of God to actually get in the church. Okay, and many of them are in, not in the church. You've got the wrong guy in the church because he knows how to sell himself. Okay? Um, because they're not interested in whether he's called or not, whether he knows the Bible or not. They're interested in, you know, is he going to grow the church? Or is he going to, you know, all of those things that the Bible put, spends so much time talking about, he says sarcastically. Um, but, but so you've got to give him a break. Okay, but then also you need to see, is this guy got a sense of the call of God? Does he understand what the call of God is? Oh, I've always felt that way. You know, go and tell him to read Spurgeon on the call of, to the ministry. Okay? If you can do anything else, be a baker or a butcher or whatever the banker or whatever the uh, Spurgeon says in that chapter, the call to the ministry and the lectures to my students, then do it in the name of heaven and earth. Do it, because you're not called. Okay? That's, that's where you need to be. Okay? Hard stuff, isn't it? You know, we're so genteel nowadays, but that's why, that's why Satan puts his people into the church. Yeah. Okay. Which has got absolutely nothing to do with, um, what I'm trying to teach here. <laughs> Verse 15. How shall they preach unless they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are, uh, are the feet, uh, 10.15, of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. That's from Nahum. Um, yeah, as long as they're sent. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? That's from, of course, 53. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you've got to preach the word of God to them. You can't expect that through the, through, uh, the law they're going to understand the gospel. Okay? Through the law, as he says in Galatians, they're going to see they're sinners, but they're also trying to establish their righteousness by it, you see? So you've got to preach 
to them the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. That's kind of Romans 1 stuff again. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. This is from Deuteronomy. And um, what he's saying to them is that, look, this is an example of you being ungodly and I'm going to provoke you to anger by, because I'm going to be merciful to other nations. Do you see? And a foolish nation at that. So you'll see the error of your ways, hopefully. And not count on this fact that you're uh, a child of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and therefore you're just saved. Alright? But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Time, please. Okay. Blast. So, that brings us to chapter 11. Now, Paul still hasn't answered the question. Okay? But he's now in a position to drive home the teaching of the covenants and apply it to this question of Israel. And that's what he's going to do in chapter 11. Okay? So your homework is to read chapter 11 and then read Ephesians 2 and 3 if you didn't read it last time and then Colossians 1. And we're going to bring these things together. Um, I don't have all of the answers, folks, to this. But what I've tried to do in bringing you through uh, chapters 9 and 10 is to show you that we don't need to do a course correction. Okay? In other words, the covenants are still on for Israel. Just as they are on for the nations later on. Alright? Moreover, everybody's saved through Christ. Everybody's saved through Christ. Why? As we saw last week. Because Christ is the new covenant. And to wrap up here, um, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, talks about the fact that the new covenant's going to be made with Israel. Okay? Context, second coming. Context is second coming. Okay? Paul, and we saw this last week, I believe, Paul says that the words of institution in the Lord's Supper are not just a remembrance, a memorial, they are also um, speaking of the blood of the new covenant. That means that Christians, when they partake of uh, the Lord's Supper, they are remembering that they're in a new covenant with God. Do you see? Now, by the way, I hope you can see the application here when Paul says that we're not under the law. We can't be under the law as a rule of life because the law is the old covenant. We're in the new covenant. Do you see that? 
Now, we're under the law as far as don't lie and don't cheat and all that stuff, of course, which is why he uses those. But we're not under the regulatory law of, you know, of festivals and all that nonsense, okay? We're not under that. Um, and uh, the, the language of Jeremiah, uh, sorry, Isaiah 49.8 is that not only, 5 through 8, is not only that, that um, Christ is the covenant for Israel to bring them to salvation, but also for the Gentiles too. But because in Isaiah 42 and 49, it's a second coming uh, and after context, that means that the nations of the world are still to be brought under the new covenant as nations. Okay? I haven't proved that. Well, I have proved it a bit earlier in the earlier course, but, but as nations. Now, the church is a new thing. So you're not going to find that in the Old Testament prophecies. But what you will find is that there's no surprise that salvation has come to the Gentiles through Christ. Okay? Because that is there in the Old Testament. I mean, that's, that's very clear. Yes? We're saved by the new covenant. Uh, there are people who hold to a dispensational position who don't know what to do with the new covenant. Um, some people I have worked with and know, and they've written books on this, and they say the church is not in the new covenant at all. That's because they don't, they don't understand that Jeremiah's not in the New Testament. Okay? <laughs> Why would you expect Jeremiah to talk about the church? You don't go to Jeremiah for a proof text about the church. You go to Paul for a proof text about whether the church is under the new covenant. And he says they are. Okay? So, uh, that's, you know, that's an, an issue with the dispensational camp. Sometimes they say, yeah, but we participate in it. No, we're not. We're in it. We're in it. We, we celebrate it all the time when we take communion. Um, Israel, at the second coming, will be under the new covenant. Okay? But it's all focused in Christ. In a kind of a, us reading Christ into every verse way? No. But he's, the, he's the, the one that looms over the whole story. Do you see? The redemption of us, the redemption of Israel, the redemption of the nations, the redemption of the planet. It's all Christological, do you see? And that's what, when you, when that dawns on you, you see that as God's creation project, you know, it's a bigger thing than just the church. It's a, it's a, a multifaceted thing. And you would expect a God who made how many beetles? 500 of them or whatever? <laughs> Not them. <laughs> but, you know, he, he delights in variety. You would expect him not to have a monochromatic people. One glob, the church. You, ex, you would expect a God who created man in his own image and he's a triune God and who has triune footprints, triadic footprints all around nature. Okay? 
maybe, just maybe, mankind who's in his image would also be triadic. Do you see? Just maybe. What's wrong with that as a working hypothesis? We're working towards it because we've already got two peoples of God. We've got Israel covenanted in the land okay, and we've got the church covenanted under the new covenant. And we've got in the Old Testament promises to the nations who will be blessed through Israel. Do you see? Yes. So, then you would have a reflection, wouldn't you? A triad of, of one humanity but three humanities that will be reflective of the Trinity. With one God yet three in one. Do you see? Which is where we're heading, by the way. Okay? And so, um, yeah, chapter 11 next week, and we'll probably only be able to get through chapter 11 next week. We'll see.